Good morning. It's good to worship with you this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, we are going to be back in 2 Timothy. So you can open to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we are going to hone in on verses 1 through 5. Expectations are funny things. The story is told of a rather old-fashioned lady who was planning a vacation in Florida. She was quite delicate and elegant with her language and chose to use her skill to write a letter to a particular campground asking about reservations. In her letter, she wanted to make sure that the campground was fully equipped but didn't quite know how to ask about the toilet facilities. She just couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter. So, after much deliberation, she finally came up with the old-fashioned term, bathroom commode. But when she wrote that down, she still thought she was being too forward. So, she started all over again, rewrote the letter and referred to the bathroom commode simply as the B.C. Does the campground have its own B.C., is what she wrote to the owner. Well, the campground owner wasn't old-fashioned at all. And when he got the letter, he could not figure out what the letters B.C. meant. So he's stumped, and he's taken the letter around to different campers at the campground, seeing if they have any idea what the letters B.C. meant. So finally, after several days, the campground owner concluded that the lady must be asking about the local Baptist church. (laughs) So he sat down and wrote the following reply. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure of informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the campsite (laughs) and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. I admit it is quite a distance away if you are in the habit of going regularly. But no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago. If you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time you go, sit with you, and introduce you to all the other folks. This is a really very friendly community. Expectations are funny things. The lady expected the campground owner to know exactly what she was talking about, and he answered, thinking he was meeting her expectations. To expect is to consider probable or certain, to consider reasonable, due, or necessary, and to consider bound in duty or obligated. You and I have expectations, When you came to church, you expected to sit in a seat that is not going to break midway through the service. You expect a sermon that is not going to make you wonder if what was said 
is actually true. And maybe you expect to find a restroom without 250 people in it. (laughs) Over time, as ministry opportunities change or increase, the challenge for every church is to not lose sight of the primary responsibilities of a pastor by elevating or then giving higher priority to expectations that should either be secondary or non-existent. And so this morning, we're back in 2 Timothy. And it's here that Paul sets out nine expectations for Timothy in his pastoral ministry. And these expectations, while true of Timothy, are also true of every man in the office of pastor. So this morning we get nine expectations that you should have of your pastor. So here we are, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. If you're able, please stand with me and let's read the word together. Paul writes this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, we thank you, God, for your word, for the way that it affirms, for the way that it challenges, for the way that it corrects. God, so many different things that happen in us, in our sanctification as a result of time in your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to be worshipped as your word now is proclaimed. Draw us close. Convict us where conviction is needed. God, affirm us where affirmation is needed. God, that we would leave this place looking more like Jesus Christ. And so, God, we commit this time to you and pray that you would be worshipped and glorified and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When you were a child, did your parents have a way of getting your attention that communicated to you, they mean business? Mine was my middle name. If my mom said, Jason Russell, it was time to listen and obey. Mom was serious. Failure to obey came with painful consequences. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul is communicating to Timothy the seriousness, the weight of the situation. He writes in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That word charged, it communicates stern admonition. But it gets heavier than that. You see, charge is a judicial term. And while Timothy is not on trial, Paul wants him to know that what he's about to say is serious. It's so serious, it is so weighty, that he's actually calling in two witnesses, God and Christ Jesus. And they're brought in to add weight to 
the testimony. See, Jewish tradition demands that a pair of witnesses be a part of a judicial procedure. And so Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, your ministry is carried out in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And so that statement is true. For every pastor who is called by Jesus, they constantly minister under the omniscient scrutiny of his divine presence. But there's a second part. Not only does the pastor practice his ministry in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, but they also will give an account of that ministry to one who perfectly saw all of it. John MacArthur explains it this way, there are three distinct judgments of human beings that Christ is going to conduct. The Bema seat judgment is for believers only. The sheep and the goat judgment of the nations is where believers will be separated from unbelievers. And then the great white throne judgment is for unbelievers only. Now in verse 1, Paul is talking about the judgment of all believers. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says this, For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All believers will have to give an account to Jesus Christ, and that includes pastors, who will give an account to Christ on the excellence of their ministry. Now remember, Christ sees your ministry, and he sees mine. He sees yours, and he sees mine. And he sees it perfectly. So when we are in the courtroom of Christ for divine judgment, whether it's for reward or for separation or for condemnation, friends, listen to this very carefully. There will be no argument. There will be no new evidence to be revealed, no cross-examination, no witnesses to call, no excuses, no jury of peers, uh, appears, and no appeal. In the most absolute way, the judge's decision will be final. See, friends, your pastors, our pastors, ultimate responsibility is not to a board, it's not to a congregation, it's not to any other human institution, no matter how doctrinally sound or how, how godly that group may be. His ultimate responsibility is to the Lord who has called him and empowered him and who will one day judge him. And so that is the weighty foundation that Paul lays for the charge that's coming. And so what's the first thing? Look at verse 2. Preach the word. Do you know what a Friday news dump is? It's when a politician, an agency, or an organization releases bad news or some documents on a Friday afternoon with the goal of avoiding media scrutiny. And so the timing is strategic because the hope is that if the documents or the bad news come out on a Friday afternoon, that there's enough time that will have passed over the weekend that by Monday, people will have forgotten about it and a new news cycle begins. Now, at the same time, when a company or a politician or an agency has news that they want to spotlight, 
they'll send out a press release or they'll schedule a press conference to herald their big news. On, and they'll usually do it on either a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And sometimes they'll hire a public relations firm to help them with the publicity. In New Testament times, the government PR guru was the herald who acted as an imperial messenger. So they went through the streets of a city and they would announce uh, special events like the appearing of the emperor. The herald's duties also included public announcements such as new laws or government policies and actions. The word preach that Paul uses here means to herald, to herald, to publicly proclaim. See, a herald has a message And it's his job to make sure people hear it. A soft-spoken herald is in the wrong profession. The herald has one key metric. One key metric that qualifies or disqualifies him as a herald. Here's what it is. Did he take the message from the authority and make it known to the masses? That's the key metric. And so Paul is challenging Timothy, cast aside any fears, any desires, any any thought of softening or muting the message, and instead herald, proclaim boldly, preach the entire written word of God. In 2 Timothy, Paul has instructed Timothy in 1.14 to guard the good deposit that's entrusted to him. Then in 2.15, he was told to rightly handle the word of truth. And now he's told to preach, to proclaim the word. Friends, pastors preach. Pastors preach. Now, this does not mean that every pastor needs to be a gifted public speaker who can hold our attention every week for 35 to 40 minutes. It does mean that every man called to the office of pastor needs to know how to rightly handle the Bible, so much so that when called upon to proclaim it, to herald it, they know how to explain it to the people that God has placed before them. Friends, a herald who consistently refuses to proclaim the message entrusted to him by his authority or a herald who alters the message of his authority is not a herald. Similarly, a pastor who does not preach the word, or a pastor who alters the word to make it say something that it does not say, or to make it approve of something it does not approve of, listen this carefully, that's not a pastor. Pastors preach. They preach. That's the first expectation that we should have of our pastoral team here. And aren't you glad that our pastors do preach? We need to expect them and encourage them to preach. So that's the first thing. Expect pastors to preach. Number two, it's found next. Be ready in season and out of season. In October, Crosby baby number four is coming. Going to enter the world, going to join the rest of us. The due date 
is sometime near the end of October, and it's hard to put any stock in the due date. Knowing this, this will be a fascinating statistic for you to discuss over lunch. Only 6% of women actually deliver on their due date. None of our kids have hit the due date. None of them. So basically, for 70% of women, there's a 20-day window, 10 days on either side of the due date, when baby is most likely to come. Now, we can't wait to meet him. We're going to name him Ezekiel, and we're going to call him Zeke. We have been making plans for Zeke. He may arrive when we feel like we're ready and we're just counting down the days because he goes past his due date like the girls did. Or he might catch us all off guard and come three weeks early like his brother did. Zeke is coming, whether we're prepared or not. Paul is telling Timothy, be ready. Be prepared. Be ready to go when it's convenient, that's in season, and when it's inconvenient, that's out of season. But here is an interesting piece of this message. It has to do with the words in season and out of season. See, those words might not be a reference to Timothy's readiness. They actually might be directed at the hearers. And if that's the case, then it means Timothy is to preach the word at times when it's convenient for the hearers and when it's inconvenient for the hearers. Now, friends, that requires a level of bravery and a great amount of discernment because he needs to know how to communicate the truth of the Christian message when people want to hear it and when they don't. One pastor puts it this way, the faithful preacher must be ready in season and out of season when it is convenient and when it is not, when it is immediately satisfying and when it is not, when from a human perspective it seems suitable and when it does not. His proclaiming God's word must not be dictated by popular culture and propriety, by tradition, by esteem in the community or even in the church, but solely by the mandate of the Lord. So, friends, we should expect our pastors to first preach the word and then second, preach it in season and out of season. And that leads us to our next point, and it's the next three expectations. Expect him to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. If you were to approach me and say, Jason, I'm thinking about lying on my taxes so I can get more money back. I'd have to strongly recommend against that because Jesus said to render unto Caesar what is Caesar. So maybe the issue for you, maybe it's not taxes. But whatever the the sin is, if you came to me and said, Jason, I'm thinking about committing X sin, it would be my responsibility to reprove you, to correct your way of thinking, and to point you to a correct way of thinking. See, I'm not showing that I love you, and I'm certainly not showing that I love God if I encourage you to continue sinning. I'm demonstrating that I love you by pointing you in a direction that is going to glorify God. See, that's what it means to reprove. Now, rebuke is a stronger word. It's different than reprove. 
See, if you're rebuked, it's, it's not because you're thinking about a sinful action. It's because you've committed one. If you're rebuked, you're being instructed to stop the sinful action and to repent. So rebuke carries a little bit more weight with it than reprove. But it's important to note that both are done out of love for the individual and love for God. See, we see these words in action in the life of David, following David's sin, his adultery with Bathsheba. The Lord sends Nathan to David in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. Nathan says this, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd or prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this great thing and because he had no pity. That's rebuke. That's rebuke. Here comes an even stronger rebuke, rebuke right here. Nathan says to David, you are the man. That is also rebuke. See, the preacher's continuing responsibility is to expose, to, rebu- or to reprove, and to rebuke sin. And so for the unbeliever, sin completely separates them from God. But for the believer, it temporarily separates them from close fellowship with Jesus Christ. So can you feel the weight of the pastor's responsibility here? This is messy. This is messy. Pastors have a responsibility from God. as a loving shepherd, to address sin in your life. When you're ready to talk about it, that's in season. And when you're not, that's out of season. And see, it's messy because we, we're like Adam and Eve. What we like to do is we like to hide our sin from God. And then when we're asked about it, we try and justify it. But, but here's the beautiful community aspect that's at play here, and we can't miss it. You see, there's, there's, there's to be such community between, between the, the flock and, and the pastor so that, that even though there's the sting of addressing sin, The pastor does so not out of a motive to condescend or belittle, but rather it's to restore and to remove the barrier that's between us and the Lord. And so, so how do I, how do I know? How do I know? Well, let's look, keep looking at the text. See, it it says in uh, verse two, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with what? Complete patience and teaching. But let's focus on the exhorting for a minute. See, the exhorting can range in meaning from simply calling out someone to admonishing. And it has the idea of encouragement. And so once a pastor has reproved and rebuked someone who is under their care, then they are to come alongside that person 
and to love and encourage them to spiritual change. And then there's the style. We already read about it. Patience. The pastor is to do all of these three things with patience. Specifically, Paul is talking about patience with people. Do you have any stubborn people in your life? Anyone who persistently uh, resists your cautions, your warnings, your reprimands, and when they do, what does that resistance bring out of you? It's not usually joy, is it? No, it's frustration, anger, disappointment. And friends, no doubt that is the challenge for every pastor, too, with members of the flock who persistently resist his cautions, his warnings, and his reprimands. But notice the response of the shepherd. See, he's charged with having a different response. He's to be patient, remembering that he himself is firmly but lovingly and patiently held accountable by the great shepherd, who is our supreme example of patience. But we get to verses 3 and 4, and Paul provides a brief word about the sheep. See, it's important for pastors to be patient because of what Paul says here in verses 3 and 4. He writes this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I think this is one of the most sobering passages in 2 Timothy. We, as a flock if we are not willing to be shepherded by a godly pastor, we'll turn away from sound teaching and wander off into myths. Have you heard of the term deconstruction? This is a term that's been around in Christian circles for at least the last couple of years. And it's usually used to describe people who grew up going to church or in Christian homes, and at one time they claimed to be Christian or place their faith in Christ, but they have since rejected that faith or they're questioning that faith, wondering, they're rejecting what they grew up with. And the result is that they've either abandoned Christianity altogether or they have replaced it with a reconstructed faith. See, what deconstruction is supposed to do, what those who advocate it say it does, is that it asks questions about the key doctrines of our faith, but the problem is deconstruction comes back with bad answers. Now, I'm a firm believer that God welcomes our big questions. He invites our difficult questions. My daughter Madison is seven. She's been asking some big, difficult questions. And so what I do when she comes with those questions is I I pull out my phone and I call Pastor Brian and I just give the phone back to Madison. And they solve it. (laughs) Madison is not, she's not deconstructing. She is, actually what's happening is God is constructing the foundations of her faith. 
And so last Sunday afternoon, we had the baptism service over at Tom and Sue Hammer's. And there were 19 people who made a public profession of their faith through baptism. And it was beautiful. It was so good. And at that service, I had the opportunity to baptize Maddie. And during the testimony time, I asked her some difficult questions. I wanted her to answer them in front of everyone. And so here's what I asked her. I asked her, Maddie, why do you want to be baptized? Maddie, what does it mean to place your faith in Jesus Christ? Maddie, do you want to be baptized because you have friends here who are being baptized? Maddie, does being baptized make you saved and right before God? Maddie, does being baptized make Jesus love you more than he already does? And then finally, I said, Maddie, the Bible says that following Jesus will bring seasons of peace and seasons of pain and suffering. Are you willing to follow Jesus in every season? And these questions are the fruit of some of the questions that she's been asking us. For example, the suffering question, the persecution question. One night, we're driving in uh, our van, and it's just, it's just me and Maddie. She shared with me that one reason that she wanted to get saved was because she saw a fight and thought, One day, that could be her. She could be in a fight. And if that were her, she wanted Jesus' protection. And so then that led to a conversation about earthly versus eternal protection and how following Jesus on earth means seasons of peace and seasons of pain and suffering. And so thinking about suffering and persecution, same conversation, Maddie says this, Daddy, does for king and country get persecuted? That's her favorite Christian band. Does for king and country get persecuted? I told her, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that there's a big movement right now among modern-day Christian musicians and in the culture to, uh, actually, no, just among Christians, modern-day uh, musicians, to sing songs about the love of God, finding happiness, and trying to get along with everybody. I said, let's say Daddy's job is to write songs about you. And all I wrote about was your fingers, your smile, and your hair. Now, let's say everything I'm singing about, on those three things, let's say it's all true that it's all true, would I be painting a full picture? Is there more to you, Madison, than your fingers, your hair, and your smile? And she said, yes. And I said, there's more to God and the Christian life than what many Christian artists are singing about too. They're having a tough time painting the full picture. See, friends, what I think is happening in the Christian music industry is similar to what's going on in deconstruction and in our culture. See, the core doctrines of God, if they were ever really known and understood by the ones who are deconstructing, they are removing these doctrines from the picture of God, and then they are questioning them critically. And then what they do with these 
doctrines is they either explain them away and say they're untrue or unnecessary. And then they're redefined in a way that's more appealing to the one who is asking the questions. Friends, what you're left with when you take this picture, this full picture of God, and you start to remove things of God that, that, and, and say that's not who he is, what we, what we come back with is less of a picture of God and more of a selfie of ourselves. And then what we do is we, we take this selfie and we hold it up high to anyone who will listen, and we say, that's Jesus. That's God. And it's just us. And so what has happened? Well, it's a turning from the truth and a wandering into myths. And so here's the deal. If you say that you are a Christ follower and you follow the wrong shepherd, you will turn away. It's right here in the Bible. You will turn away from sound teaching from truth, and you will wander off into myths. You've got to catch this in verses 3 and 4, because the group that Paul is talking about is not the unchurched. It's not the unchurched. This group, this group wandering off into myths that no longer endures sound teaching, this group comes from within the church. Paul writes, they will not endure sound teaching, which means that there was a time where they did, but that time is over. They no longer willingly listen to or put up with sound doctrine. They don't put up with the message of the gospel or the proper and accurate explanation of the scriptures. What's happening? Their ears itch. Their ears itch. Do you know who has the largest collection of vinyl records in the world. His name is Zeru Freitas. He is a Brazilian businessman whose love of vinyl started when he was just a kid and his father purchased a hi-fi stereo that came with 200 albums. Since then, he has continued to collect albums and to date, he has over 8 million albums. Now, when Paul writes, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. The idea is that they will collect more teachers than what is actually needed. Now, let's not miss what he says about itching ears and turning away from listening. Remember, how does salvation come? Deuteronomy 6.4, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Galatians 3.2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Galatians 3.5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then one you probably all know, Romans 10.17 So faith comes from hearing, and hearing 
through the word of Christ. Friends, the, the adage, I forget how it goes, but something like preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. It's just not true. The gospel is words. You have to use words to proclaim the gospel. And so if salvation comes through hearing, then turning is a disastrous move. And so here's what I hope we will say as, as Edgewood. I, you know, people choose churches based on a number of factors, including children's programming, music, friendliness of the people, uh, the discipleship programs that are offered, the, uh, uh, how well the pastor preaches, the content of the message. And I hope that as a church, our strongest commitment is to the content of the message. I hope that we never compromise sound teaching for some type of lighthearted message or for entertainment. I hope we will commit to the accurate teaching of the Bible because that is what Christ is calling our pastors to do. And so friends, if your ears itch, don't scratch, endure, endure. Well, let's look briefly at the last four expectations. They're in verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. First, expect our pastors to be sober-minded. He is to be self-controlled when those with false teaching around him run off to false teachers. He's to be continually alert and to be watchful and cautious, self-controlled with those when those with false teaching come against him. Number two, he is to endure suffering. If you have been tracking with us through 2 Timothy, you know that this is the third time that Paul has talked about suffering to Timothy. It shouldn't surprise any believer, quite honestly, about the the correlation of being a Christ follower and the suffering that also comes. Jesus sets the bar when he talks about suffering for following him in Matthew chapter 5. Number three, he is to do the work of an evangelist. Now, this does not imply that Timothy had several different hats that he wore at different times. See, the work of an evangelist, the preaching of the gospel, was done as a part of his work as a pastor. It wasn't sometimes he's a pastor and sometimes he's an evangelist. It's both. As a pastor, he's also an evangelist, just like you too are an evangelist, in addition to being a father or grandfather, a mother or grandmother, a son, a daughter, an employee, an employer, a neighbor, or a coworker. Number four, he's to fulfill his ministry. Timothy's work in the ministry wasn't to be done half-hearted or to be half-complete, and neither is our pastors. He's to go all out and to do his work until it is complete. When is it complete? You and I know that our work, our ministry here on earth is complete once the Lord calls us home. So Timothy's work was continual, just like your ministry and my ministry is continual. 
We are never done advancing the gospel until the day that we die. That's your ministry. That's my ministry. So let's fulfill together our ministry. Well, what do we do with the message? I have a handful of application points for you. Number one, one day Christ is going to judge the living and the dead. And you will stand before him and give an account of your life. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, we can handle that. We can care for that before you even head home. If you have, is there anything in your life that needs to be confessed and repented of? Now's the time. You have an opportunity to remove the barrier between you and Jesus. Don't let the moment pass you by. Number two, pray for your pastors. Pray for your pastors. They have a challenging assignment that's given to them by God. Their ministry is executed in the presence of God who sees all, hears all, knows all. They need his wisdom, his discernment, his grace, his mercy, his boldness, and so much more. What if part of your ministry to them is lifting them up in prayer? Did you know if you took seven days and prayed for two staff members each day, you would care for praying for the entire Edgewood staff in one week? Number three, to our pastors. Keep preaching the word. In our culture, there are heralds of self-help, efficiency, leadership, and how to become a better version of yourself. And while some of those messages may be helpful tools for improvement, only scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The salvation of souls and the sanctification of saints are both tied to proclamation of the word, and we need you and we want you to preach the word. Number four, to all of us, let's enable them to do the nine things that are listed here today. Let's encourage them when we see these nine things happening in their lives. Let's enable them to do these nine things. Here's number five, and it's for all of us as well. Apply the word. We need to apply the word. Friends, one day we're all going to stand before God, before Jesus Christ, and we're going to give an account for what we did with the word. Remember that on that day, there will be no argument, no new evidence to be revealed, no cross-examination, no witnesses, no, uh, no witnesses to call, no excuses, no jury of peers, no appeal. And in the most absolute way, the judge's decision will be final. In your life, 
how will that judgment read? Let's state it more positively. Friends, you have a God who cares so much for you that he has provided his son to save you, his spirit to sanctify you, and his word to teach, reprove, correct, and train you. And it's carried out through your pastors and Christian community, which means you have to be plugged in. Why? Why? Why would he do all this? Because he's called you to something bigger than yourself. He's called you to something bigger than yourself. See, he desires that you would be complete, not complete in terms of perfection, but complete in terms of adequate, capable, proficient in everything that you are called to be or do. God cares for you so much that he has invested himself, his son, his spirit, his word, your pastors, and this community to equip you for every good work that you would live righteously and faithfully serve the Lord. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, do you know what's going to compete against you in this area? Itching ears. Itching ears. When your ears itch, don't scratch. Friends, don't collect false teachers. Disown them. Remove them from your collection. Don't scratch your itching ears. Endure sound teaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time in your word. And God, I I pray that this time was challenging and encouraging, worshipful. God, that all of us would leave this place looking more like Jesus Christ. God, I pray for my friends here who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And God, I pray in this moment, right now, right here, God, that they would admit that they are a sinner, that they would acknowledge that their sin has separated them from an always holy, always righteous God, and that their attempts to make things right with this always holy, always righteous God, just don't do it. Just don't solve the problem. What they need is a savior. They need Jesus Christ, who came to earth, lived the sinless life they couldn't live, died the death on the cross they should have died, was buried and rose again, and now makes it possible for all to be made right with you. And so, God, I pray in this moment that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and, God, that they would make him Lord of their life and follow him the rest of their days. God, for my friends in this place who have already done that, I pray, God, that that you would reveal to us if there's any sin that needs to be confessed and repented of. God, that, that, that you would strip that away, that we would confess and that we would repent and that we would, we would strive, God, to, that that barrier between us and you 
although temporary, that it'd be removed and that fellowship would be restored. God, I pray for our pastors in this building who are doing ministry even now during this uh, sermon and will do ministry this week and far beyond the, the sermon. God, I pray that you would bless them today. I pray that you would encourage them today. I pray, God, that you would fill their, their tank and prepare them for another week of ministry. We love them, God, and are so grateful for godly men who love you, love us, and preach the word. So, God, help us to respond to their preaching. Help us all to apply your word. God, that it would be our desire to grow spiritually and look more like Jesus Christ. So, God, help us to do that. Thanks for providing your Holy Spirit to enable that. God, you are so good and so gracious to us. God, as we leave this place, may our tanks be filled and may the words of our mouth be pleasing to you, pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping this morning. Have a good week.